and welcome to the Overland Journal podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Giordano, and today I was fortunate enough to sit down with Jeremy Craker and Elle West, two Canadian adventure motorcyclists who have traveled the Pan American Highway and beyond. Elle is a motorcycle trainer based in Calgary, Alberta, and Jeremy is the author of four books. As ever, we hope you enjoy this episode, and thanks so much for tuning in. This content is brought to you by Overland Journal, our premium quality print publication. The magazine was founded in 2006 with the goal of providing independent equipment and vehicle reviews, along with the most stunning adventures and photography. We care deeply about the countries and cultures we visit and share our experiences freely with our readers. We also have zero advertorial policy and do not accept any advertiser compensation for our reviews. By subscribing to Overland Journal, you're helping to support our employee-owned and veteran-owned publication. Your support also provides resources and funding for content like you are watching or listening to right now. You can subscribe directly on our website at overlandjournal.com. Here today on location in Canmore, Alberta, with Jeremy and Elle, two adventure motorcycle riders with plenty of history of traveling throughout the world. So thanks for joining me. Great to be here. Yeah, happy to be here. I ride, well, currently I ride a BMW 700 GS. And back in 2004, I was riding a Honda Shadow. And I thought I could get to uh, the end of the road in Panama. I knew that the highway ended just after Panama City. And if you look at Canada on a map, from east coast to west coast, it's a long distance. But you could do it in two weeks. If you take that same distance and turn it this way, it looks like Calgary to Panama and back. So a friend of mine and I went together on two different bikes and we thought we could go there and back in six weeks. And it's humanly possible, but we did not make it. We went to Guadalajara and then came back, we ran out of time. So the thought ever since then was I have to do that. Like it's an incomplete trip, I need to go do it. So 2013, I actually did go down to Panama and back and then loved it so much, did it immediately after that again in 2014 and then thought I need to go all the way. I gotta go all the way to South America, to the tip of South America. And so I was planning to do that around 2019 and then Jeremy and I started hanging out with each other. Her name is Elle West, by the way. (laughs) Jeremy and I said, Jeremy was like, actually, I haven't been all the way to South America. I've been to Panama and back, of course, as he writes about in his book, but I haven't been all the way. And I was thinking 2019 as well. And I was like, hmm, maybe, maybe we could go together. But it depends how things go. And if we still like each other, we'll see. And turns out we did go together in August of 2019. We left Alberta and made it down to the southern tip of uh, Argentina in early 2020, just before COVID broke out. And then we were uh, starting to make our way north again. We got as far as Uruguay before the borders closed and locked us in. Oh, wow. So we made it down, but we didn't make it back. So what did you do? Were you trapped in Uruguay for a little while? We were trapped in Uruguay for five months. Oh, for a little while. (laughs) Wow. Okay. So you had your bikes there and everything, or had you... Okay. We were trying to decide, do we ship them? Do we leave them? Can we store them? Is this going to blow over in a few months, or is it going to take two years? And we we weren't sure what to do, so it took a while. And then and it was expensive. Did, so we're did, launching right into this. Hey, I thought you were going to go, hi, my name is Elle West. I've been to this many countries and I ride a BMW. And then I was going to say, hi, my name is Jeremy Craker. I ride a Kawasaki KLR650 and I've been to about 30 different countries with my motorcycle. I'm also the author of two books. 
And their names are? Motorcycle Therapy and Through Dust and Darkness. Nice. What's covered in the books? Motorcycle Therapy talks about a trip that I did in 2003. Uh, basically, me and my buddy were both uh, unceremoniously let go by our girlfriends, respectively. And so feeling sorry for ourselves, we jumped on a couple of motorcycles and just headed south. And then in the process of doing that trip, uh, I discovered that my friend was also quite irritating. And then uh, that caused me to think that the only common denominator here is me. So oh, no. uh, it turns out I'm a very difficult person to live with and travel with. And so that's kind of the foundation of the book. And then you found a travel partner that you travel well with. I have been unable to travel with anyone uh, except for Elle. I've traveled with uh, Neville, our host here, who is um, the He's owner of all these motorcycles. Mm -hmm. uh, we have actually managed to travel together, but just for a fairly short period of time. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that even Neville would agree that he, by the end of a two-week trip, was quite irritated with me as well. <laughs> and we traveled well together overall, generally. We left together and we came back together, but there were a couple rough spots. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. I don't think you could go on any mm -hmm. kind of overlanding trip, no matter what Instagram might lead you to believe, uh, without a little bit of uh, drama and a little bit of, uh, you know, a few blemishes that, that the pictures don't show. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's an important part. And I think that's one thing when I was reading your book, Through mm -hmm. Dust and Darkness, uh, one thing that I noticed was there, the good and the bad was captured. You know, it wasn't just like this wonderful trip where everything went well. Right. It was a really honest account of all of the emotional and spiritual and physical things mm -hmm. that travel entails, which was, yeah, really nice, really refreshing. And Thank you. These yeah, times of Instagram. Yeah, I mean, I kind of set out with these books to be fairly open and honest. And uh, it doesn't always, you know, I don't always paint myself in the most positive light either. But uh, hopefully there's some humor uh, to carry the day. And that's a danger in being a travel partner of Jeremy's. Yeah. Before we ever left, I said, if you do any writing about this, I want editing privileges. And he said, absolutely not. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she doesn't get uh, editing privileges because I know what she would do. Uh, she would want to write her uh, side of things, and uh, that's valid, but uh, that's for your book. Uh-huh. <laughs> might happen someday. Uh, I was going to ask you, when was the initial trip that you went on? Uh, the first time I tried going all the way to Panama yeah. back, um, 2004. And there, there was nothing that I knew of at the time called an adventure bike or portals or websites where you could go and learn about all this kind of stuff, let alone conferences where people got together and shared this kind of info. Um, I had to stop once a week and find a library in mm -hmm. order to access the internet and send an email home. There were no smartphones. Different. Yeah, very different than now. Yeah, and mm -hmm. I was actually in uh, Guatemala in 2003 before I found any websites that suggested that this was even something that people do. So I hadn't read uh, Jupiter's Travels yet, and I hadn't uh, found any websites with information about how to do this. I just thought that I was the first person to ever think about doing this trip. <laughs> so in a way, that uh, complete ignorance actually made the trip more interesting. But since then, obviously, I've discovered a lot of the resources, and it's a fantastic time to do this kind of travel. And we still don't do a lot of research. Like our South America trip, we didn't know a lot before we went. No. I remember arriving in Bolivia and seeing an animal like moving across the land far away. And I stopped 
And I thought, is that an ostrich? Like, what is happening right now? There's no ostriches in South America, are there? I had no idea. It was a re, a rhea. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it properly, but a smaller version of an ostrich. Mm -hmm. I had no idea those animals existed. I wasn't aware that they were glaciers (laughs) in Peru. Lots of things were still surprises. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. We don't research at all, it should be said. And, uh, you know, still we somehow bumble our way through. So how did you come together? How did you meet? Were you both riders, so you knew each other through that? Or were you both in Canmore living here, so you met that way? I stalked Jeremy for about five years. <laughs> well, first of all, we met in British Columbia at a motorcycle rally, and I was there to promote Motorcycle Therapy, my first book. Mm-hmm. And I was there with my then girlfriend. And I was there with a partner I was traveling with who had just read Motorcycle Therapy because I gave it to them. And I said, <laughs> you should read this. And they did. And they started making plans based on this book. This guy says that if two of you travel together, you should travel on the same motorcycle. Because then if you need any spare parts, they work for either bike. We're going to do exactly that. And he loved the book. And he was like quoting it to me. And then I showed up at this event. And this guy is wearing a name tag that says Jeremy Craker, author of Motorcycle Therapy. And so my very first words ever to this man were, holy crap, you're the guy that wrote the book. Hey, Greg, can I make this guy? And Jeremy's very first impression of me was that I was slightly insane. Well, and also my girlfriend at the time, I could feel her like eyes boring into the back of my head. She <laughs> did not appreciate that kind of attention that I was getting. It wasn't my fault. I was just, uh, just the author of an amazing book. <laughs> <laughs> so then we bumped into each other every year or twice a year at yeah. motorcycle events, the motorcycle show in Calgary, um, overland gatherings like that. Mm-hmm. And I would every time be like, hey, Jeremy, good to see you again. And he would stare at me and say, yeah, hi. And I could tell he did not remember who I was. <laughs> so after about four or five years of that, I think we finally connected through some common friends. And- yeah, it, we, it, mm-hmm. it turns out that we had some mutual friends who kind of reintroduced us. And Elle was, of course, well aware of who I was, but I took me a while to figure out who you were. And now I'm so happy that I did. <laughs> tell me a bit about your writing history? Like, how did you both get into writing? Was it something you did as a kid? Was it something you picked up later? How how did that? My dad bought me a dirt bike when I was like 13 years old and we were living in Saskatchewan and there was nothing but open prairies. And so I uh, kind of spent my summers just chasing gophers around the fields. Yeah, I learned to ride on, on a field on a little dirt bike. When I was 16, I got my motorcycle road license right away and I've been riding ever since. I've had a motorcycle since I was probably about 20, 21 years old. As soon as I got my license, I loved it. I would cancel my car insurance in the summertime and only ride my motorcycle for everything to get groceries, to do anything. I would carry my cat inside my motorcycle jacket with me if I was going anywhere. I just always loved motorcycles since I was old enough to be on one. And I think even in high school, when girls would often want to go on a motorcycle ride, they had to have a guy who liked them enough to want to take them. Mm -hmm. And immediately I thought, well, that's a bad plan. Like, just get your own. Learn how to ride your own. There was maybe a couple years in my life when I didn't have a motorcycle. Almost every single summer throughout my life uh, since 2021 years old, I've had a bike. And it's just the best way to travel. I I prefer it so much to being in a van or in a four-sided vehicle, being part of the environment and feeling the wind in your face and being out there not behind a pane of glass makes a big difference to me. Mm -hmm. I've been skydiving, I've been mountain climbing, I've been a lot of 
different ways to try to get that feeling of exhilaration. And, and to me, a motorcycle is the best way. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. Where was that happening when you were in your 20s? and you um, In Calgary. Okay. Yeah, so I've always lived in Alberta. Came to Canmore after Jeremy finally said, I think I like you enough to let you move in. <laughs> That's exactly how it happened. <laughs> and what about for you? What is it about the bike? Yeah, I would echo a lot of what Elle says. I just feel... It's the ultimate for me, and it's going to sound cliche, but it's just a sense of freedom. It feels like you're flying. Uh, and even when you're not happy, and it's very easy to be unhappy on a motorcycle, you can go from having the best time of your life to all of a sudden being the most uncomfortable you've ever been uh, in, in like 0.5 seconds. But even then, there's something kind of nice about it. It's, it's being alive and not... It's difficult to be complacent when you're on a motorcycle. And it's dangerous to do that too, right? To kind of zone out and just kind of not really pay attention. Uh, So forcing you to kind of be present and really experience the wind and the noise and the smells and all that kind of stuff, even if they're not always pleasant smells or pleasant (laughs) Mm -hmm. temperatures. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How does that work with driver fatigue on these long trips? I guess you have to pace yourself. Do you have to pace yourself because you're paying attention to all these things that are happening on the road and all the temperature changes and... Yeah, like when we were doing our trip from Canmore here to uh, Tierra del Fuego in Argentina, you know, there was a few days where we did big miles, like 900 kilometers, but Mm -hmm. that was all kind of in Canada and the States. And then once we got to Mexico and Central America, I'll bet you like for us, a really big day would be 500 kilometers. Mm -hmm. Most of the time we were kind of doing 400 and you know, five, we maybe push it now and then, but so we would really take rider fatigue kind of seriously and trying to find shelter, of course, before dark and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think generally speaking, it's easier to do longer days in a four-wheel vehicle than mm-hmm. on a motorcycle. You got to stop more often for gas and you need to stretch and you can't have snacks while you're riding and things like that. Well, Elle can. Yeah. She can eat chocolate when she's... Yeah. Uh, chocolate is yeah. always around. It's yeah. actually interesting mm-hmm. because I can always tell when she's stuffed a piece of chocolate in her mm-hmm. mouth because we have an intercom system generously provided by Motology School. That's right. Yeah. And um, so on the intercom, I can just hear her like a happy little chipmunk and then she'll be talking and yeah, I can actually mm-hmm. Like hear the smile on her face. You just got to keep one piece and let it melt slowly over a long time. Ooh, yeah. 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 Then you got the sugar and the caffeine Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. the joy. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. So did you guys take any training before you left on any of your trips or were you mostly riding on-road or off-road or how did your experience build? Probably mostly on-road, a little Mm -hmm. bit off, but um, I'm not super confident off-road. And I'm overly confident (laughs) off-road. When we go on gravel, Jeremy just goes and he knows to wait at the end for me. And I'll slow down and I'll take it at the pace that is maybe not the smartest because when it's gravel or loose, rough surfaces, it's better to have momentum. And sometimes I slow down because I think I'm only willing to go as fast as the speed I'm willing to crash at. And Jeremy's like, if you go faster, it'll be over quicker. You'll be more stable. And I understand the reasoning, but I'm not going to ever be as fast as Jeremy on gravel. But And she usually catches up. But one time she caught up to me after I had crashed. Yeah. So it doesn't always work out in Mm -hmm. my favor to be that confident. It was in Chile. Um, I was going, I don't know how fast, but I know that I was looking at my speedometer and then I was looking at the road up and down and up and down. So it was between 60 and 50 kilometers an hour. Um, like kind of hit a ridge and I got sucked into the ditch and then yeah the KLR did some gymnastics and then uh, I had the bike up on its wheels by the time you came around the because corner. Because a carload of people came and helped you. Yeah. 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 
Anyway, uh, I'm willing to ride faster than I want to crash. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. gotcha. And then on the road, the dynamics of the relationship, you've obviously mm. figured that out or or have made it work <laughs> together. On a the little bit of luck, maybe a little bit of uh, I think mm. age helps quite a bit. Yeah. Generally in any relationship and understanding that sometimes it's better to just bite your tongue. And Elle has finally wait. settled for, <laughs> for someone. That could so be somewhat good. of a factor, but someone who rides motorcycles isn't willing to go to South America and back with me. That's I mean, true. that's a big plus. Well, and also that. there's some, some things that are super simple that you don't think about, uh, which is just having snacks yeah like things some, you should learn by this age and still haven't learned apparently yeah, like i'm 50 years old now and it's only now occurring to me that when i get really grumpy sometimes all i need is a peanut mm -hmm. uh, and sometimes it doesn't always work this way but sometimes if i can feel that you're getting irritated with me uh, rather than change my behavior because i'm too old to do that I'll just give you a piece of chocolate. Mm -hmm. And sometimes... Sometimes it helps, sometimes at least for an amount of time. Yes. Especially crossing borders and things like that. But again, not to be all Instagram polished or anything. It's difficult sometimes traveling with anyone. And then you travel with uh, your life partner, you know, whom I love. Mm -hmm. um, but also being in that close proximity under stressful situations and you're not always comfortable and you don't know what you're going to do next or where you're going to sleep sometimes. And it's easy for me to get kind of short and mm -hmm. not lose my temper exactly, but demonstrate my irritation. And that is uh, something that I could learn to be better with. I'd say there was one good day when temper was lost. Yeah? Yes, in uh, uni in Bolivia. Okay. Yeah. And oh. then we just separated for a day. Yeah, we had not a trial separation. A <laughs> yeah, he was unhappy and he wanted to find food and I wanted to find food too. And we didn't have breakfast that day. He was mad and frustrated and basically like giving up. And I said, fine, give it to me. I'll see if I can find. And I, oh, okay, I think there's some restaurants. It looks like a whole bunch of a commercial area over here. I'll lead. Let's go over here. And so I'm leading and I'm going to the place. And on the way, he's behind me. I hear him in the intercom. Oh, I think I see a place. I'm just going to go there. Fine. Go ahead. See you later. <laughs> and I thought about it. Am I doing something I'm going to regret? Is this one of those decisions that's going to have a really big impact? And I'm going to wish I hadn't done it later. And then I thought, no, he's just around the corner. I know where he stopped. I can go back and find him. I'm going to go eat lunch by myself mm -hmm. in my own restaurant on my own bike. And I think that's a saving grace too. If we were both on one motorcycle, I don't know how those people do it. I don't know either. We even brought two tents. That was my decision, that and Jeremy decision. made fun of me ahead of time, but yeah. I was like, I, we haven't lived together. We haven't been dating that long. I'm not ready to commit to that the whole way down. And if you piss me off enough, I want to be able to go my own way, or at least for lunch, my own way. Mm -hmm. And I think that actually was a good decision. We had a couple hours. We ate our own lunch. Then we reconnected. Yeah. And mm -hmm. also, my side of the story is I was actually quite relieved when I heard her voice like fade out of my intercom. She was like oh, no. talking, talking all of a sudden. And I'm like, oh yeah, mm -hmm. I'm going to go have some food. <laughs> and it then, happens. So there again, yeah. it basically came down to food. Yeah. After we ate lunch, both of us, I think we're feeling quite a bit better. Mm -hmm. That breakfast. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We missed breakfast yeah. and then we were cold and then we were, there's a combination of things. Temperature. Not eating, mm -hmm. low blood sugar because mm -hmm. of not eating. It's like the classic, mm -hmm. yeah, couple, overlanding couple yeah. situation <laughs> coming up. Yeah. yeah. Which you don't necessarily, when you're at home, you don't necessarily have to 
deal with that because you can go your separate way. And you're not together 24 seven at home. Go to work or you go spend time with friends or do something else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How do you do it? You're traveling two in one vehicle. Yeah. (laughs) How do we do it, Richard? How do we do it? He's not mic'd up. You've got all the power. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I think we've talked about food so many times on this podcast about snacks. Yeah. Like search word snacks. Yeah. We talked about that Mm -hmm. with many different couples. And yeah. The same way you pacify a toddler. (laughs) You you have to just take care of yourself sometimes. Mm -hmm. And especially when you're getting into a stressful situation, like you said, a border crossing, if you're going into a border crossing, really thirsty, really hungry, really hot, really cold, and all of that going into it, and you have to go into a problem solving situation, Mm -hmm. you're not going to be in a good place. Yeah. Especially a problem-solving situation that is unfamiliar, that isn't in your native language, that doesn't make any sense. How many times in, I think Nicaragua is one of the worst border crossings for me. Yeah. Thank you. Is there anything else I need to do? Nope, you're good to go. Sweet. And then the next person is like, no, actually, you're not good to go. You didn't get this stamp and you didn't get a copy and you didn't bring it to this office. Well, just tell me and I'm happy to do whatever's required. Am I done? Yep. Am I good to go? Yep. And you try leaving? No. There's a police officer stopping you. You don't have this. Like, there's always something that just doesn't make sense at those border crossings. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, those are tough ones, Central America border Mm -hmm. crossings. I hate them. And Mm -hmm. it's like you have to switch off your North American brain. Yeah. Oh, sure. And be like, let's turn on our Nicaraguan brain. Change those expectations. (laughs) It it was at that border crossing that we finally found a line to Mm -hmm. clear our paperwork. Mm -hmm. Elle was in front of me. After leaving one building and walking across the mud and construction to another building, waiting hours. We'd already been two or three hours into the process by then. Yeah. Found the new building. And she's in line and she gets her paperwork stamped and it's done. And she's like, thank you. And then the guy goes, shh with the window and like she goes away with her paperwork done and I'm like the next person in line and I'm like what oh this line is closed yeah. so now I had to go to the back of the line that was right beside me yeah it doesn't make oh, sense maddening and on that border crossing as well we were told to go bring your paperwork to the blue house that's what we heard yeah but it turns out we were supposed to go find a police officer wearing a blue shirt mm-hmm. so uh, we were looking for a blue house and we were trying to uh, it was Being fluent in the language would make a difference. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, Mm. for sure. I remember there was a kind of little guidebook written by the time we had gotten there and they had laid out the procedure, kind of. Mm -hmm. You know, it's always going to change. It'll change on a Tuesday compared to a Saturday and who's working. Yeah. Uh, But the framework started to get familiar, which I'm sure it did with you as Mm. well by the time you got further south. We're like, okay. Now this is sort of mm-hmm. what needs to happen. And then by the time you figure it out, you're suddenly in Colombia, and then all the border crossings just get easier and yeah. easier and easier and easier. Mm-hmm. And it's not that you know the language better, although that may be part of it, but it's just the Central America. Uh, they have not figured out how to move people through their borders efficiently. How did that compare to your trip over in Europe and the Middle East? I mean, obviously the Europe part. Yeah. One of the hardest border crossings that I've had to do is into Egypt. A lot of travelers, if you talk to them, you'll hear the same story. Egypt is difficult to get in, especially if you have a vehicle or, you know, I saw one guy crossing in with with a pet. That's even more problematic. But yeah, it's just a lot of the same skills apply. Uh, A lot of patience, you know, try to not... um, be loose and fast with your cash. If somebody asks for money, there's a good chance it's for a bribe. And, um, you know, you try not to give into that kind of pressure. 
it's just bring a bring some snacks bring a lot of patience and just kind of outweight them like that's something that you can do as a traveler if you have no itinerary really mm-hmm. you you kind of have more power than they think you do mm-hmm. like oh okay well we're not going to cross the border tonight i guess we'll just camp here yeah. or you can't camp here well then i'm coming home with you yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, you have to provide shelter mm-hmm. uh w- without being you know saucy or without raising your voice i know some people uh do it with grace and aplomb they can raise their voices and get mad at people and they don't seem to suffer any consequences but it's not how i choose to handle like that situation mm-hmm. i'm always friendly try to be smiling and patient mm-hmm. and same with protests too i've come across situations where the road was blocked because of a protest and uh one time i just went up to the front of the line because of the motorcycle you can wiggle your way up there which is nice kind of just watched what was happening for a bit and i was intimidated definitely people had sticks and they were smashing the sides of the transport trucks and chanting something that i couldn't understand they clearly weren't happy after observing one guy who made eye contact with me i just said hey my spanish is very poor but if you're able i'd love to ask you some questions and learn more about what's happening here and why you're protesting mm. and he went come here let me tell you the government this and our water's polluted and nobody's helping and rah 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 And I was like, "Wow, that's awful. I think I understand. Thanks so much for explaining to me." Is that your motorcycle? Yep. Hey, George, open the gate. Let her through. And I was like, "Bonus. Sweet." Ah, mm-hmm. uh, that was somewhere in Central America. It might have been Mexico, but there were multiple times when protests were happening, and I know other travelers have said, like, "You just got to crack your engine and barrel through, or you got to yell at those people." And my approach is they're protesting for a reason. Yeah, like we are on our run vacation essentially. Yeah. And these people are dealing with very like possibly life and death struggles yeah. and they're tired and frustrated. If I need to rent a hotel room for an extra night and wait to, for it to clear or if I put my tent down here. Like I've got everything I need. That's mm-hmm. the bonus of traveling with all your tent and everything, I think. That's the nice thing mm-hmm. too about traveling versus going on like a two-week vacation. Yes. Um if you have enough time, mm-hmm. your plans get disrupted, but it's not that big of a deal because this is all part of the experience. Where if you have a two-week or three-week vacation, every day seems so important. We have to see this thing and this thing and this thing, you know, if you have time, it makes any any travel a lot better. For sure. I was thinking of food poisoning or getting sick, yep. you know, that can blow out your whole um, <laughs> two-week vacation or one-week yeah. vacation. Yeah. Not to mention your digestive tract. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> That's a really good tip mm. to go and talk mm. to them and say, If it seems safe and right. if you're comfortable with it, sometimes it's not a possibility. Yeah. Sure. And I've done the same thing at border crossings too. There was a border crossing. I was following a friend of mine who wrote to me and said, "Hey, instead of the Pan American Highway, come over to the East Coast." I crossed from Panama into Costa Rica and it took me 20 minutes. And I was like, "No way, there's no such thing as a 20-minute border crossing in Central America." So I went over there and she did everything, stamped my passport, I'm in, and then I said, "Okay, now my vehicle." And they said, "Oh, no, the computer's down." Well, how about another computer? No, 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 it's not the computer. The computer system is down. Well, what if I went back and drove 2 hours across the country back to the other side? And she said, "No, the whole system is down. You won't get across any border today. So, I had my tent with me. I had food with me. There was other people in vehicles who also couldn't cross that day. So, we just shared. We put up our tents in the parking lot, which was dirty and gross, but free, and we shared food. So, I had a jar of peanut butter, somebody else had a loaf of bread, 
somebody else had spaghetti and somebody had tomatoes. And we just all together made spaghetti sauce with peanut butter sandwiches the next day for breakfast. Yeah, that sounds like a horrible combination. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it worked out. Okay. And that's a story to tell later. Mm -hmm. Again, if you were on a two-week itinerary, that wouldn't have happened. Yeah. yeah. No. Or you'd be panicking and stressed out. Yep. I mean, I say, and Elle disagrees, but I don't know why. I, I think that good memories are based on bad experiences. Some um, of them, but not all of them. You yeah. can have good ones too. Sure. True. Mm -hmm. The best stories seem to come out of a stressful or uncomfortable mm -hmm. situation. In Argentina, classic example, um, we were on the Route of 40 and oh. it was like a horrible gravel section. In fact, some people call it the worst gravel section of that that entire journey. Yeah, the... 73 those, Malditos. Yeah, the 73 shitty ones. And we had high winds, like, and I can't exaggerate how high the winds were. And uh, L had a few offs. We were told, too. Like, we yeah. were told by somebody who grew up in Argentina and spent a lot of time with us and rides a motorcycle. And they said, just get up early. Just get up early do as much riding as possible before the wind picks up, because usually it's calmer in the morning and picks up throughout the day. Get off the road by noon and then sleep, get up early and do your traveling early in the morning. But we didn't listen. Nope. So after the <laughs> third time that uh, Elle crashed her bike, we set up a tent in the high winds and just slept there right in the ditch. Yeah. And I was tempted to say, let's just go to the, like, we're almost mm -hmm. there. But then I thought better of it because what if she gets hurt mm -hmm. or what if I get hurt? Or it whatever. was infuriating. Yeah. It was maddening. Like you can't stop. As soon as you stop and put your foot down, the wind just flattens you. You got to keep that momentum. And on gravel, you can't. Like literally, I'm pushing as hard as I can into the wind and I'm just sliding across the mm -hmm. road sideways. But my point mm -hmm. is that that was a bad day, mm -hmm. but it's a great memory. And I think traveling is like that a lot. We had food. We had cold pizza left over okay, with us. That yeah, was so a saving grace. Good memories are based <laughs> on food. Good memories yeah. are based on cold pizza. That's Accurate. a t-shirt. That's you a t-shirt idea. Yeah. Yeah. That, mm. by the way, that whole uh, event where we crashed and had to set up shelter and everything is on my uh, YouTube channel. So lately I've been doing less writing and more kind of vlogging sort of things. And that's uh, on my YouTube channel if you want to search for Jeremy Craker. That's nice. where you find that kind of mm -hmm. stuff. How have you found the storytelling aspect of going from writing to the video component? It, it's a steep, steep learning curve. Like all the, the story principles are the same, but like learning the technology and the gear and all that kind of stuff. If you're a writer, essentially, all you really need is a pencil and a piece of paper. But um, if you're going to tell stories through video, you need microphones and camera equipment and lights and things like that. So it's been a steep learning curve. It's quite rewarding, though, when you get it right. I'm still trying to work my way up to my 100 videos. Long ago, I someone gave me some advice. They said, um, make a 100 crappy videos before you give up. And so I'm getting up to that point now and hopefully they're getting less and less crappy as the time goes on, but I might return to my paper and pencil soon. We'll see. <laughs> um, I was going to ask you also about how you started writing and pub getting books published. Was mm -hmm. that something that you had done as a kid or did you just start taking notes while you were traveling and it kind of came along or how did that begin? Yeah, I mean, I did write for um, a few newspapers and things like that before I went on this trip in 2003. And whenever I travel, I keep a pretty good journal. So I'm always kind of writing, but it's not really for consumption. But what I was doing on this trip to Central America was I was writing emails back and forth to my family and friends, and I was putting quite a bit of effort into them. So some of them were quite long and some of them were funny. And then when I got back, people said, 
oh, those are funny emails. You should write a book. And then they just left, right? That They thought that that was a very sage advice that they gave me. Yeah, so I started to think that I could do it quite easily if I just compiled the emails in my journal. But then I realized how much actual hard work and revision is required to make a proper book. So that's how that book came about, was I compiled everything and then I rewrote it about, I don't know, I don't want to exaggerate, but I'll bet you I rewrote it 10 times. Finally hired an editor. In the end, I ended up self-publishing Motorcycle Therapy. Off the success of that book, I was able to find a publisher for Through Dust and Darkness. That's Rocky Mountain Books, right? Rocky Mountain Books, yeah. They're it's, local. Yeah. Right? They're Well, yeah, they used to be based in Calgary and now they're based in Victoria, but it's a great little uh, publishing house and um, Don Gorman is over there running the show right now. I believe he's still there. I haven't uh, communicated him with him for a while because I haven't been writing, but yeah. And then uh, I went back to publishing my own uh, anthologies when I did Motorcycle Messengers and Motorcycle Messengers 2. And those are a collection of various stories from other motorcycle yep. adventures. It's all just motorcycle travel uh, stories, short stories. And I've got a few stories in there as well. So I guess I've always been writing, but uh, I only really started taking it seriously when I set out to write Motorcycle Therapy. Okay. And then what did you learn from motorcycle therapy that you did differently for the next I book? learned almost nothing. I, <laughs> I honestly thought, okay, now I've written a book, the next book will be easier and I know how to do this. As it turns out, every stage of the writing and publishing process is the most difficult stage. Like the starting is the hardest thing mm. and the continuing, then that becomes the hardest thing and on and on and on until finally you're exhausted and uh, you hand it off to a publisher or to an editor and, and then selling it becomes the difficult thing. So it's really a labor of love more than anything else. They say uh, of mountaineering that the, the most important tool that a mountaineer has in his toolkit or her toolkit is a short-term memory uh, mm. because you forget all the suffering. And I would say the same applies to uh, writing if you want to do it well. I did want to do it well. I, I always want to do like every story that I, I tell. I want to make it the best I can. Were you taking notes diary style in the evening? Because obviously you're writing and you're having these experiences. So how are you getting those onto paper so vividly? If you see my journals, like if you look at my, and sometimes I'm typing them on my computer and sometimes I'm scribbling them in a notebook. But if you read them, they're almost unreadable. Like they're just things that I jot down to trigger my memory when I go back to them later. If I have time, then I'll sit down and I'll write a proper, you know, journal entry. And then sometimes I'll get like way behind and I'll have to catch up 10 days. And then it will just be bullet points, lots of swearing and lots <laughs> of spelling mistakes and scribbles. And then I try to be better going forward. And he'll jot down stuff along the way, like a thought in his head that he wants to preserve and save for later. So I think more capturing the feeling mm -hmm. and then constantly coming back to me asking, where were we? And what date was <laughs> yeah. that? And what country was that? And so yeah. I keep the data. Yeah, I've also mm -hmm. got like a little notebook, like you say, and sometimes mm -hmm. I'll just jot down a phrase or a funny sign or something like that. And it's really just about triggering the memory or a direct quote. Elle has some strange quotes that I've written down. Mm -hmm. How did it differ between self-publishing and working with a publisher? Because I know that a lot of Overlanders have gone both routes or either one. Some, mm -hmm. some mm -hmm. are only publishing themselves or some are only with publishers. So what was that difference like? Like self-publishing is 
I think, very difficult if you want to do it well. So it's just a lot more uh, dedication, I guess. And you have to really, yeah, it's just, it's determination. You've got to really see it through. And if you ever decide that you are done with it, the problem with self-publishing is you can just publish it and maybe it's not good enough yet. So um, that's why I hired an editor for motorcycle therapy and they helped me rewrite the whole thing. They helped me find a story. Like I had a bunch of things that happened. They helped me find the thread. They didn't write it for me, mm -hmm. but they gave me some guidance. They said, I like this. I'd like to see more of this. You can ditch this section. And then, so I rewrote it again. And that would be my advice to anybody who wants to self-publish is spend the money and hire an editor, not your friend, not your English teacher, not somebody that you know, but like a professional who will give you good and, and sometimes difficult advice. Uh, and then with a publisher, Rocky Mountain Books was very good to me and I'm grateful for everything they did. They were the ones who, after I, I also hired a publisher and I had it basically ready to go to self-publish and then I handed it off to them and uh, they liked what they saw and then they helped me shape it even more. But then I could relax a little bit too because once they had the manuscript, then I knew that the copy editing was gonna be done. I knew the layout was gonna be done. I knew the artwork was gonna be done. It just took a lot off of my plate. And they also did a great job with distribution, which as a self-published author, uh, distribution is often the problem. So you can find copies of Through Dust and Darkness uh, in bookstores all over Canada. If you can't find it there, you can ask them to get it in and they can. And I think motorcycle therapy as well. But if you self-publish, then it becomes more difficult to get okay. books into the hands of readers. Right. Yeah, they have a machine that is a publicity machine with connections and email lists and things like that that yep. you don't necessarily always have ac access to as a self-publisher. Yeah. So that makes sense. And they say the book stops selling when the author does. So I think that's also part of the reason that I started the YouTube channel, to be honest, was to just be like, check out my books. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So And they're actually still doing well, so I'm happy. It, it's, it's difficult. Not that I'm complaining because it's all something that I've chosen, but don't expect, you know, I never did expect and I wouldn't expect going forward to make it any money doing this. Yeah, let's talk about budget a little bit. That's always the question that everybody asks. I'm sure you have experienced this where people are really curious about, you know, how can you just leave your home or your job or whatever for long periods of time mm -hmm. and travel. And motorcycle travel is a really great way to travel on a budget from what I've seen. I haven't done it myself mm -hmm. yet. I think it really depends how you travel. It can be done quite cheaply and it can be done quite expensively too. And I think with two of us on motorcycles, two different bikes, two different gas tanks to fill, um, I'm not sure that it is cheaper. I think if we had been in a small four-wheel vehicle, I think it would have been cheaper on gas every time you cross the border and pay for all the temporary vehicle import permits every time and insurance and registration and things like that. But it would have been too hard in our relationship. Yeah, <laughs> we would have come back together probably. But when I first went to Panama and back, I was gone for six months and that was my plan was to avoid a Canadian winter. So I yes. left when the snow came and I didn't come back till the snow melted. So six months I budget, and that was uh, more than a decade ago now. So prices have increased somewhat but I budgeted $10,000. I don't think I could live in Canada for six months for $10,000. No. So it depends what you're doing and how you're living. If you're in your tent a lot, if you're staying in local places or if you're staying in five-star hotels and where you're eating. I stayed in Nicaragua at a homestay for a month, took some Spanish lessons, did some volunteering, 
I lived for a whole month on 200 Canadian dollars because I had room and board included with my stay when I did volunteering. So if you want to do it cheap, it's possible. Um, I nowadays, s- I think I would have a higher budget. Can I <laughs> yeah. say what the whole budget was for a whole year? Sure, yeah. I think our whole budget for an entire, well, it's 13 months, was $30,000 each. Each. Canadian dollars. Canadian dollars. dollars. Yeah. Um, and, and that's... But that included getting stuck in Uruguay for five months mm-hmm. and then having to ship our motorcycles home, which we weren't which budgeting we, for. We sure. then went over. Yeah. Yeah. But that includes like new tires, new brakes, a couple oil changes, maybe chain and sprockets yeah. along the way. Yeah. Now that sounds like a lot of money and it is, but again, like living in Canada for an entire year, Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think, I mean, it'd be tough to do that for Mm -hmm. $30,000. Right now, people screaming at the podcast saying, I can do it for cheaper. Definitely. Oh, definitely. Mm -hmm. Uh, Ed March, he's a good uh, friend of mine. He can travel around the world on something like $10 a day or less. Probably if anyone could, Ed Merch could. Yeah, Yeah, I can't. Hmm. I mean, maybe I could. I don't think I could, though. And age, I think, is a factor, too. The older I get, the less I want to be uncomfortable. Oh, yeah. And sleeping in the dirt on an uncomfortable mattress every night. I'm usually the one pushing for like a hostel or a hotel. But I have noticed that as we're both aging, Mm -hmm. Elle much more gracefully than me, that uh, it's easier to push her into a hostel. <laughs> yeah. like, right. We could sleep in the ditch, but wouldn't you rather have mm-hmm. a toilet? A hot shower yes. and a real bed yeah. and clean sheets. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. We are mm-hmm. also experiencing that too. Mm-hmm. It's just so nice to have that hot shower and mm-hmm. those comforts in life. Yeah. You well, know? We just did um, a short three-week kind of adventure in uh, February. Yep, in we Ecuador. F- we flew to Ecuador and mm-hmm. we rented a motorcycle and then our friend loaned us a motorcycle. So we had two bikes and uh, we always stayed. We didn't have our camping gear. so We, we didn't have tents and everything with we us. We always yeah. stayed in places by our standards were even a bit upscale. A couple of times. Yeah. Yep. It was so nice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just so much nicer. And yeah. that's the other side of it. Like we loved taking a year off and I'd love to go again for a year. I'd love to go for multiple years, but mm-hmm. financially I have to come back and work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so this is what we're stuck with now is three weeks vacation is what we're allowed at our jobs. Jeremy gets four weeks. And so we took three weeks. We flew to Ecuador. We had some people we met there. So we knew we had a place to stay and a bike to borrow. Mm -hmm. Um, But it still cost quite a bit to fly, to rent a second bike, to stay in places where we didn't have tents. And now hopefully we're saving a little bit more every year in order to go again for a year someday, sometime. But we're paying for that. We have roommates we don't go out very often. We're being quite frugal. That's right. And my YouTube channel is now beginning to pay for the trips. I'm, yeah, uh, it's so, it's such a great income earner. I'm making 33 cents a day. <laughs> Perfect. Every day, every day. Every 30, day yeah, counts. 33 yeah, cents just true. rolls in. I'm curious about your budget. Like, uh, mm-hmm. you're about to continue this big trip that you're on. Mm-hmm. And yeah, since we broached the subject, how are you doing it? So it's going to be very interesting to see what the difference is like because we did our first Pan American trip in our 1990 Toyota pickup back there. Mm -hmm. That was, how much was that? 75 bucks a day for Mexico, Central, and South South. America over 18 months. Inclusive for both of you. Both of you. That's pretty good. That's great. including shipping home or shipping across the... Right. So it'd be Mm. more, obviously, but I thought we, that was a pretty good, pretty good job during that time uh doing something similar in north america would have been around 150 dollars a day mm-hmm. easily yeah, yeah. And even today things yeah. are more expensive now we have so we're taking our 2008 tundra 
and a camper to Europe. So we're both like, oh my gosh, this should be interesting mm-hmm. uh, with budget. And, you know, Europe's supposed to be expensive. I don't know how much more expensive it is than Canada or the U.S. Um, because I would say the U.S. portion hasn't wasn't inexpensive. Mm-hmm. It's fuel in Europe. It's totally. Yeah. So we'll try to move really, really slow, stay don't, in places a long time. Mm-hmm. Don't go, go to, to Scandinavia. The, or if you go, do go to Scandinavia, yes. just realize you're going to blow your yeah. budget. Totally. Yeah. Yep. There's that. And then um, we are really, really, really fortunate that we have transitioned our work to mm. things that we can do on the road. Now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you so, can make money while you're traveling. Yeah. That yeah. makes a big difference. My editorial duties and writing articles and Richard's filming. So all those things we can do. So it should be, it's different than the last trip. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Last trip we were just out, mm-hmm. yeah. quit everything. And there's a different uh, mindset in that for sure. You're just free. Yeah. You're doing the thing. That's the way to do but it. But you're free until right. the end, how the money runs out. Yep. And then that's a sad feeling. That post-trip, I'm going to yeah, call it post-trip me, depression. Tell me more that's about a real that thing. Because I, I have experienced it also. Mm. And a lot of um, people I've talked to have had a hard time with it. So let yep. yeah, share your experience if you want. I would say that I've experienced it often and it always catches me off guard. Like mm. I think that I, oh, I didn't have it this time. <laughs> and then like 18 months after I'm home, it hits. Or I never, mm-hmm. I never see it coming. I think that was part of what I was going to say is we talked about it because we'd both been familiar with it. We'd both experienced it before. And so this time we said, oh yeah, that's a thing. But but we're aware of it. We're, we're familiar with it. So <laughs> it won't be an issue. It still happens. Being aware of it doesn't stop it from happening. It still comes. And for me, winter, like in Canada, when we have the darker nights and the less hours of daylight and the cold temperatures where I just don't even go outside sometimes for a whole day, mm-hmm. it's uh, it can be pretty depressing. It's brutal here. And also the mountains are some of my favorite in the world. Like Canmore is one of my favorite places on the planet that I've been to. But having those really steep mountains yeah, and you, you only lose get, yeah, yeah, you only get a, sometimes a shockingly low amount of yeah. sunlight per day. One the of winter. the worst places in the world, I think, is just up the road here in the field. So field is beautiful. It's just across the BC border, but the mountains are so high and mm-hmm. the canyon is so narrow that in the winter time, I don't even know if he, I don't even know if the sun crests the hill. Yeah. So how did you work through that time period? I remember watching some YouTubers who were traveling as I was getting ready for my first uh, 2013 trip followed them and stayed in touch with them and met up with them at the same place where I first met Jeremy and yelled at him. When I finished my trip and came back, I was like, oh, this feels awful. I don't want to go back to work. I don't want to pack my motorcycle away for the winter. This is a horrible feeling. And she wrote to me and she said, now you know what you're working for. And I hung on to that. That was good. I was like, yeah. So every day that I'm going to work and thinking, I don't want to go to work today. Oh yeah. But if I save my money, this is what's going to get me back to where I want to be. And one of the things that we did after this trip was Jeremy just offhand mentioned, where are we going to go? And when can we take time to go for a year again? We need to redo South America because we didn't get to finish it. We only got halfway. We need to do that again. But when can we do it? And how can we do it? And how much money do you think? And we just kind of tossed a number in the air and said, what if we had $50,000? How long do you think it would take us to save that much? What if we could do that by 2026? And so I grabbed a felt marker and I wrote it. 2026, $50,000. And that's still on the whiteboard today. So you can look at that every once in a while when you're like, I don't want to go to work today. I'm pretty sure. Oh yeah, that's what I'm working for. 
I'm pretty sure I'm gonna get fired before that. Well, let's... so maybe we can go even sooner. <laughs> and and I think I uh, I think I kind of handle winter a little bit better. Yeah. Than, than L, even mm-hmm. though I'm outside all the time, and sometimes it's minus thirty. I still ride my bike to work every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's like seven minutes away. Bicycle. So, bicycle. Yeah. Yeah. Bicycle. <laughs> yeah. So mm-hmm. seven minutes in minus thirty is still bad, but it's on not... an ice sheet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've got studded tires like this. <laughs> and, oh, good. Yeah, but I think me having. A somewhat active job is helpful. And then when I come home and it's like, it's dark when I go to work and it's dark when I come home. But having these videos to make was helpful. I think uh, just some creative project that I like to do. I watch them all the time. <clears throat> Jeremy comes home and he finds me watching YouTube and he's like, oh, what are you watching? Oh, you're watching us. And I'm like, yeah. yeah. Can you believe we were there? Like Ecuador yeah. was just a month ago. Yeah. And it feels like, did that really happen? Or was yeah. that just a dream? Or were we talking about that? Or did we really do that? So I love that we've got these tangible videos that I can look back on and go, yeah, mm-hmm. that happened. So great mm-hmm. because you forget so much so quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about Through Dust and Darkness because mm-hmm. there was a very specific reason why you went on this trip to right. this specific area of the world. So I was raised in a very um, closed off kind of insular conservative Christian place. So I was, I say in the book that I was given all of the answers before I had any questions. It kind of started, didn't really fit with me that worldview after I left home and uh, started poking around the world. And my thought was that I wanted to go to uh, an entirely different worldview and examine religion from a different perspective. So I went to Iran, which was um, at the time, I think George W. Bush was making noise about, you know, their nuclear program. And and it looked like war was not um, an impossibility. And I wanted to go see this country because I'd heard so many beautiful, wonderful, glowing reports about it. But I also wanted to look at religion from a totally different vantage point. So that's what I did. You know, it sounds like I'm talking about religion quite a bit, but I still don't consider it a religious book. It's at heart a motorcycle journey. And for me, it was a kind of a journey of discovery. It was helpful. And, you know, ultimately now at this uh, stage in my life, religion uh, doesn't really hold much of a place for me anymore. I've kind of, I think, moved past it, but it was helpful for me to go and just kind of have my foundation kind of shaken a little bit. Mm. It's easy to look at another culture or another religion or, or someone with different religious beliefs and to see it with all of its blemishes and its flaws and maybe even look at a certain uh, set of ideas and, and think that they're ridiculous, but it's hard to look at your own sets of ideas and and be critical and and really examine them openly. So that's what that trip did for me. That's pretty powerful. Yeah, it was a difficult journey, uh, not only the motorcycle, getting it there and getting through all these countries, through Syria and, and Iran. I didn't actually get my motorcycle into Iran, uh, spoiler alert, but uh, I did travel there. Yeah, I, I would say it was a trip that changed my life. I would say in a positive way. My mom would say in a negative way. She's still She's still praying for my soul. Probably right now, if she's listening to this podcast. <laughs> Thanks, Mom. Yeah. Shout out. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, again, I, I don't like to think of it as a religious book. It was just me kind of examining the presuppositions that I had and my background and my upbringing and coming away, I think, with a broader view of the world. It's all thanks to motorcycles and the KLR 650. Yeah, I would say I would agree. Oh, good. I would agree for good. sure. Yeah. When, when it was really read... interesting oh, thank you. to follow with you on the journey and see what you were thinking and how it was changing and what you were observing and the experiences that you had and Mm -hmm. 
meeting different people and oh yeah it was really interesting well actually i think that's partly why i haven't written another book was because through dust and darkness uh really took a lot out of me um my opinions and my beliefs about the world and myself and where I saw myself in the world, they were shifting as I was writing the book. So there was a few times I actually, I actually stopped writing and I said, that's it. It's not a book. It's a series of short stories. I'm going to sell some of them to magazines, which I did and no book. And then I went back to the Middle East, which is not in the book. It was after, you know, the civil war was kicking off in Syria. I went to Syria and I was you know, doing some work for the Toronto Star. Kind of a long story, but I got arrested and then kicked out of the country and then ended up back in Canada. And then that's when I was kind of depleted emotionally. <laughs> I picked up the book again. And after sending it to my friend, Mark Richardson, who's a dear friend of mine and a, a good writer and editor, he went through it, basically said, you can finish this in six months, but you have to commit to it. And I did, and it was the hardest thing I've ever done. Was it the kind of vulnerability and the difficulty of going through those changes that was really hard, plus the writing that was hard, or was it just everything together? It was everything together. Like I laid myself bare in this book. There's a few passages that uh, I don't think that I could have been more vulnerable. And so that was difficult to put down because I had to first be honest with myself. And then I had to decide that I was going to let other people see that side of me. And that was no easy feat. You know, again, I don't want to ruin the ending, but um, it's not a pro or or it's like, it's not a, it's not a book that rails against religion or faith. Uh, it's not a book that embraces it either. It's just me going through the journey. I think if I wrote that book now, it would have a, a much different conclusion. I think I would be more uh, decisive in how I finished the book. This book leaves a little bit of mystery at the end, I would say. And I did have uh, an encounter uh, with something bigger than me that was unseen. And that happened uh, in Iran. And that, again, is open to interpretation as to what that was. Mm -hmm. If that was God speaking to me or if it was just my own anxiety, the reader can make up their own mind. I, I know what I think happened, but it was a difficult book to write. Elle didn't like it as much as she liked my first one, which was just me talking about uh, rice and eggs in Central America. <laughs> the first one is funnier. Yeah, the first book is right. funnier. It's quicker. It's an easier read. Mm -hmm. And then this, uh, Through Dust and Darkness, I do think it's a better book. Uh, it's got more substance and it was difficult to write. Some people read the back cover, I think, and they're, they're turned, uh, they might be a little hesitant to pick it up because mm. it doesn't mention religion. Right. But as I say in the book, you can't, you know, you can't uh, go to Iran and, and write about it. You know, if you try to write about it without mentioning God or religion, it's like trying to sail around the world without writing about the ocean. Yeah. It, religion and uh, religious belief is everywhere uh, in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, and I haven't been to Iran, but uh, mm -hmm. from what I know of the area, it's infused into daily life. Even the language. You can't speak Arabic without, um, oh, probably somebody's going to be listening to this and say that this is incorrect, but I believe it's difficult to speak Arabic without using religious terminology. And it's, it's very influential religion in the Middle East. Would you go back to Iran? In a heartbeat. Love would it. Would you go? I would go, sure. Yeah, if we yeah. can get in. Yeah. <laughs> well, when I went, it was it was actually more difficult for Canadians to get in than it was for Americans. Mm. Uh, and I actually met a Canadian in Iran 
that had a stamp on her passport from Israel. Everybody says that's Whoa. impossible, but I saw it with my own eyes. Yeah, she apparently, I don't think she was, uh, anyway, she flirted with a border guard. I don't think she did anything inappropriate beyond that, but somehow she got in. Wow. Yeah. I was going to ask you about, um, you mentioned earlier that there's a good community of female motorcyclists. Have so, you seen that change? Is it growing or is it, tell me more about that. Generally, I do think it's growing. Um, I teach in Calgary on in summertime, of course, on the weekends. I teach motorcycle school what? for brand new riders. We, I learned a little bit of statistics through that, and there's talk about generally in, probably this is a North American statistic, about 18%, um, getting close to 20% of riders are women. I think that number would be higher if we had bikes and gear that was more comfortable and more purpose-built for women. Some people worry um, when I go on rants like this, I'm not trying to be an angry feminist. I think that if I owned a company that built motorcycles and I knew that 90 or 80% of the people buying them were going to be men, I would target it to fit their bodies. The problem is not just seat height. Um, we've looked at grip strength and um, all kinds of differences in women's bodies. So having some adjustments to those bikes is I think making it better. And there's a few. Um, there's a few that are not just girls' bikes, but have some adjustability to them, like levers that you can adjust. And um, seat height is getting a little bit more customized on some bikes now, which makes a difference. And you can walk into a store and not just find pink gear that is for women. So that's getting better. And I think that if you feel like you belong and you don't have to walk into a store and feel like, oh, if nothing in here fits me, maybe I'm not meant to be here. Mm. If you don't keep getting that feeling every time you go to a class or a motorcycle sh shop or a gear store, then hopefully more women will get into it as well. Um, I think I was just stubborn. I just wore men's gear and, uh, and it didn't stop me from riding a bike. And I just picked a smaller bike to begin with. Um, but at um, the Overland event in Oxford, mm -hmm. am I saying it right? Yeah. There were so many women there, so many who had been doing this way longer than I ever was, way longer, since before I was born. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, look at women like Elspeth Beard, who went around the world on her motorbike, and she tried to get sponsors, and she tried to write articles, and there just wasn't people willing to publish it and take it and support her. Now there are. Now people are like, you did what? You did that when? Holy cow, that's amazing. Why isn't there a book written about it? Why isn't there a website dedicated to that? Why isn't there a YouTube channel? Well, because people at that time weren't interested in what women were doing. Mm -mm. There's the, the two sisters or the mom and daughter couple who rode across uh, the United States. The Van Buren sisters? Yeah, the Van Buren sisters. Mm -hmm. Like this is back when there weren't roads. There were motorcycles with headlights that were actual flames. You had to stop and light it <laughs> when yeah. it got dark out. Carbides, yeah. And they rode. And what happened? Did they get applauded? Did they get supported? Did they get offered sponsorship? They got arrested for wearing men's clothing. Mm -hmm. Come on. There's a lot less resistance nowadays, which is great. So I get to see some of these women like in Oxford, there was a lot of WIMA, Women's International Motorcycling Association members oh. who have fabulous experience and stories to tell that are just coming out now. Well, here you got to shout out Lois Price and yes. Tiffany Coates. Yes. And uh, Antonia Bolingbroke-Kent. Yes. And um, I'm forgetting a bunch of them, mm -hmm. but uh, there are books written by yes. uh, women riders and they have done adventures like Tiffany Coates. I wouldn't want to ride with her. 
She would lead me, like <laughs> Tiffany, I love we, you, but yeah. she would lead me in the mud. Yeah, <laughs> we did ride with her, but we followed on pavement. Yeah. A gentle, nice, easy days riding. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I wouldn't keep up with her off-road. Mm-hmm. There's a story about two women that uh, crossed the Sahara in a motorcycle and a sidecar. I can't remember the <clears throat> the year. I'll have to send it to you guys. It was probably one of the most intense travel logs I've ever read. Getting stuck, pushing mm, that a motorcycle and a sidecar sand. through the sand. Yeah, it was in yeah incredible, mm-hmm. incredible. So lots of cool stories out there. I have a special affinity and interest in women's historical overland trips, mm-hmm. so I can totally identify with that. Motorcycle Messengers too actually has a lot of uh, female mm-hmm. writers in yep. there, so that's a good place to kind of sample yep. who's out there for writing. Mm-hmm. And check it Perfect. Out. Mm-hmm. There are a couple of questions that we ask during every podcast, and I'm stealing Scott Brady's question, which is, what is your favorite book and why? Favorite book? Favorite book. Oh. I know what you're going to say. No, you don't. Well, I, don't th- I don't know what I'm going to say. You go ahead. You're going to say Ted Simon, Jupiter's Travels. Travel book. Doesn't have to be a travel Doesn't book. Doesn't have to be a travel book. Oh, okay. Mm. Okay, okay. So I will say, yes, Ted Simon, thank you for writing Jupiter's Travels. Um, with all due respect, Mr. Simon, uh, that's not my all- all-time favorite book. I would say that uh, maybe Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance or or something by Hemingway. Probably Farewell to Arms. I'm going to go mm. with a Farewell to Arms. I'm going to throw a curveball. It's got nothing to do with motorcycles. Yeah, he Hemingway inspired me uh, in, in many ways to improve my writing. Mm-hmm. He has a very interesting style because it's kind of, it seems simple, but yeah. it's really effective. Yeah. And that one is about his time in Spain. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. What is it about that book that you really liked? Well, I think that was the first Hemingway book that I ever read. So I think it really impacted me more than uh, his other works. It was just what he could do with very simple sentences and very simple terminology. And I also love uh, Tom Robbins as a writer. And he is the polar opposite of Hemingway. He is very, uses giant words. I've got to sit there with a dictionary by my side and like look up every you know every other word but yeah i'm gonna go with a farewell to arms and i know that as soon as this podcast is over i'm gonna go oh Mm -hmm. i should have said this or that i'm thinking as you're talking i'm like i can't pull up one i can't pull up one i think it's really hard to pick one yeah it is yeah it's like your favorite movie Mm -hmm. favorite movie Mm -hmm. air quotes i think for me though one of the definitely top ones i'm going to say anything by lois price i was gonna say this is my chance to do (laughs) earn some points right and name one of your books definitely motorcycle therapy oh, for good. sure um i have reread it and i don't do that very often with a lot of books but motorcycle travel i think lois price has to be up there in the top um she's got a great writing style and it keeps me engaged not just because of it being a motorcycle travel book but her writing style in general yeah all the yeah. history that's woven through mm-hmm. and her storytelling ability and yeah it's great I can't wait to have her on the podcast. Again. Yeah. Well, where can people find you two on the interwebs? Yeah. So online, I would say uh, if you want to see our videos, just go to YouTube and look up Jeremy Craker. Uh, it's K-R-O-E-K-E-R. So that's partly why I started that YouTube channel was just to teach people how to pronounce my last name. <laughs> it's uh, it's difficult to spell. Uh, it's Jeremy Craker. It's um, Jeremy's channel, but there's lots of me on there. Yeah, he loves so, to keep the camera on me, even when I don't always know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I would say that my online uh, presence is a bit broader because mm-hmm. I've been working at promoting books and stuff like mm-hmm. that. But I'll bet you if you'd search L West on YouTube, which is easier to spell. It would t- take you to Jeremy's channel. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Mm-hmm. You also have a website and yep. do you have any social media handles that you want to share where sure. people can find you? It's all Jeremy Craker based. So jeremycraker.com 
Uh, my Twitter handle is Jeremy underscore Craker. I think that's my uh, Instagram as well. Jeremy underscore Craker. I'm sensing a theme. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's, I'm, <laughs> it's very, I'm very, also if you search motorcycle therapy, uh, a lot of those things pop up as well. Mm-hmm. Well, yep. thank you guys so much for taking the time to chat with me. I feel like we could chat forever talking about this stuff and mm-hmm. It's been really wonderful to listen and learn more about all of your adventures. And I'm really looking forward to seeing where the next trip takes both of you. Thanks. It should be really exciting. I want to answer one of Richard's questions because it was great uh, and I didn't get a chance to tee it off. If anyone's looking for the books, Richard, thanks for asking. The best place to start is go to your local independent bookstore and uh, they can get it in if you ask for them by name. And if they can't, then you can shop online, but support your local independent bookstore. Super important. Yeah. We've got a great one here in Canmore called Cafe Books. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's excellent. Yeah. Yeah. I really like it. Yeah. Love that place. Well, thank you guys again. And uh, thank you so much to the Overland Journal Podcast listeners for taking the time to tune in today and we will catch you next time. Perfect.